everybody, and welcome to another episode of our epic X-Men reread here on Crushing Comics. I'm joined by my friends and fellow X-Fans from across the world from me, Tyler and Fariha, and we are here to read some classic Claremont X-Men. Today, we're going to be tackling Uncanny X-Men 116 and 117, as well as the modifications to those two issues and their backup stories in classic X-Men number 22 and 23. Before we get started, you know, this is quite a, uh, a lengthy, geeky endeavor to shuffle all of the X-Men into the correct reading order. What other uh, wonderful geek endeavors are the two of you up to right now? I don't know. What about you, Tyler? Um, <laughs> you're going to laugh at me because of you. I actually started um, trying to start a D&D campaign. <gasps> With strangers? Did you find other no, people you knew that with, already? With people in the Omni group. Oh, very cool. <gasps> yeah. I've so always wanted are... to do one with like internet people, but it's, yeah. you know, it's a lot to organize just for friends. I don't it know is, about being in two. It is. And yeah. we are in like, how many? One, two, three, four different time zones. Ooh. <laughs> oh, so that's going to be like, you know. Yeah. Like, that's that's going, going to be, to be a while. And then um, in terms of collectibles, I got my first set of um, of hero clicks, uh, Hawksbox hero clicks, and one of the chase that I really, really want is this. Oh, it's is this it is Wolverine Old, as Phoenix? Old Man Logan, Old Man Logan Phoenix. You're and just, I'm so you're just trying to upset I... me nice and early in the recording today, <laughs> so I get wrong. <laughs> I know you didn't like the story, but I like this figure because it's, I thought it was really cool. It is a very yeah. cool figure. Heroclix yeah. like mystifies me. I remember being around for the beginning of Heroclix yeah. and like, but also playing magic and things like that. And I just don't understand how all of the information is contained on their little dial. And well, yeah. this is not the time I, to explain I, it all to me, but I'm it's not mystifying it. to me. I, I'm only collecting the figures. I'm oh, okay. not playing it. Yeah. So. Oh, it's a game? It is a game. It's a tabletop game. Yeah, you they oh, each have powers and why, stuff and yeah. That's why you have you have all these like little clicks here. Yo guys, all this time I just thought they were just figures that you like, you know, like Falco Pops. And I, I always looked saw those. I'm like, what are those for? I'm what like, are those? <laughs> Some of them are really cool though. Like the sculpts yeah. are really you know, neat. They really push yeah. them super far. Yeah. Right. What about you, Freya? What is what's nerd like life for you right now? So I am obviously like, you know, in this whole X-Men endeavor. And then I decided that I'm going to read so much X-Men that I'm going to become bitter and angrier, <laughs> like more bitter and more angrier. Like, you know, I, so I am just now following your guide on crushing crisis and crushing comics and then going and then figuring out how to kind of save all of them in Marvel Unlimited in a way so that it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, you know, with X-Men, it has to be confusing. It has to be convoluted <laughs> or else it's not an X-Men, right? So <laughs> I am, I'm just trying to kind of follow through all of that. And then on the side, I'm also trying to see, um, get, uh, like, you know, I have a couple, I don't know if you can see it from here, but then, you know, this boxes of, stuff like you know comics that I kind of make uh, mm. using like just a BCW comic folio so I'm trying to see if I can get one for Wonder Woman but I'm trying to see what era of comics will make sense and you know how expensive it can get so I'm kind of also working on that on the side as well mm. you know just I mean something I to keep me busy 
Yep. I'm very happy I kind of got all of my Wonder Woman before all the movie stuff. I remember my the bulk of my floppies actually came from, I found somebody on Craigslist basically selling all of Wonder Woman, I guess that's volume two, the 1987 one, for like 200 bucks. But it was every issue. They just wanted to get it like out of their house. And I was like, what? you know, Craigslist sometimes pops up some interesting yeah. deals, especially less so for collected editions, but for floppies, because mm. people just don't realize what the market is. They don't want to know. They just, they don't want to eBay. They just want to get it out of their house. That's the George Perez run? Yeah, starts with George yes. Perez, which in my mind are probably the best comic books of the 1980s. I hold them on yes. a very, very high pedestal. Yeah, so I was actually kind of thinking maybe that's the route I want to go, but I want to read them first a little bit before yeah. I can mm. decide. Well, my my recent nerd stuff has not been uh, comics. I am an obsessive collector both of comics, well, not both of, comics and many other things, but especially music. <laughs> and I do this project where I try to basically put together a um, sequential listen to somebody, just like we do a sequential read for X-Men. And so every few months I get, I am reminded of some artists and I'm like, oh, it would be cool to listen to all of them in sequence. And I forget what, what made me think of it, but this weekend I was thinking about the Go-Go's, you know, like our lips are sealed and vacation and we got the beat. And I was like, I just have those three songs. And so then I went down this rabbit hole of like, well, what are all the Go-Go's albums? Do I want all their solo projects? Whatever. So I'm like starting to amass my, this is the only way I know how to live life. All of my projects are like complete sequential projects. (laughs) Did you do, are you going to make a Go-Go guide as well? Well, I, this is, I have done this now for 200 artists where I research every single recording they've ever done. It started when David Bowie passed away and I did it for him. And then I just Mm. kept going and going. So Mm. I just have folders upon folders of of every recording. Like if they did backing vocals somewhere, if they produced somebody, like I have it all in order. And I've just never figured out how to do web content with it, but it's all there waiting to be published. So yes, the I'm pretty yes. sure there is a market in there somewhere. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty like, sure once you do that, and some like producer wants to create a encyclopedia or something, they will be they'll be like they'll find it really useful, and then you can charge them for it. Maybe <laughs> right, it's all about how does it get monetized? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not well, really. Starts, no, we do these. It things always for fun. starts with a hobby. Right, and it starts then, with a hobby, and then yeah, you, you figure know, out how to turn. Yeah, it into and a then hustle. if it becomes you know. Um, well, if it makes money for you, great. <laughs> Today we are digging into these X-Men stories. We're in a very particular time, right? So the X-Men mm-hmm. had that big blowout with Magneto. Right now they're stuck in the Savage Land. And it's kind of like, where in the world are the X-Men as they circumnavigate the globe to get mm-hmm. back to the United States? Never once thinking to, well, they try to get in touch with, with Xavier did. and everybody, as we'll see in this run. So mm-hmm. this is... um. You know, it's a very specific run of X-Men. You get to see Claremont kind of playing with different locations and things for the team after establishing the who they are. And where we pick up in Uncanny X-Men 116, they're in the middle of the Savage Land and they tried to leave only to find it suddenly blizzarding at the end of the last issue, which is weird for the Savage Land. Yeah. It's this warm dome of, of, uh, of Antarctica. And so they come back and they realize that this villain, this God King villain, is basically creating ecological disaster with his major headquarters here. And then it puts the entire savage land at risk. So without too much debate or thought, the X-Men kind of just into the breach they go to defeat the God King. And that's where we are in this issue. Freya, you are a brand new reader here, having not read these before. What did you think of 116? Um, It was a good filler. You know, kind of it felt like more of the same fighting, fighting, fighting. And then, you know, it's like, oh, X-Men gets into something uh, heads head first without necessarily thinking about it. And then they get captured. And then three of them is like, oh, we got to go save the others. And then 
the end. Um, but this one actually had a little bit a really great moment with Storm, like you know something mm. that she has gone through, and then I think uh, Wolverine also was beginning to show the kind of Wolverine we know a. L- not necessarily now, <laughs> like you know, we have some, you know, some debate about now Wolverine, but yeah. you know what I mean, like the more, like you know, something that we have seen more mm. recently. So I think there was like some good elements in it, but overall, it just like you know something I'm not gonna remember compared to that Magneto issue that we talked about. That was mm. amazing. What about Banshee? Like, what do you think about Banshee? Yeah, I, I don't know. He's, he's just there. <laughs> I, I, I try. I try not to think about cave dwelling ban- banshee. You know, like it's just there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, look, he, he. I think he got a scene here, like on the cover, <laughs> with his mouth basically gag. And yeah, and so so. It. But the thing is, that's actually pretty. I was gonna talk about it a little bit later because yeah. his mouth was gagged and then yeah. Cyclops' eyes were gagged, yeah. you know, <laughs> like or gagged. Like the Cyclops had something on their eyes, Come and on, I was actually yeah. monitor, like noticing all of these things in the art because I'm like, Tyler and Peter are gonna talk about art. I have to notice these things. <laughs> but, but then I was actually kind of thinking, like, what kind of clothes? what kind of material is being used that works yeah. on Banshee and on Cyclops and why do they have that in the Savage Land? I mean, it's one of those like question overthinking questions, but I know. you know. But but poor Banshee, he no no one seems to like him. He just you know, he just get a little bit here, a little bit there. At least until now. That's that's all he has. Like uh you know, a couple of panels here, a couple of panels there. Remember how he flew up and got caught by the dinosaur and then, you know, and need, need some rescuing, that kind of thing. So, Well, something I, I definitely feel happening, you know, as we move forward in the run is that every character in a fiction, you know, they need to have their place. If they're too similar, whether that's in powers or personality or whatever, it becomes hard to do things with them. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been explaining this a lot to the kid lately because we've been watching X-Men the Animated Series <laughs> And she's like, well, why does it have this character, not that character? Why does it have Rogue and not Colossus? I'm like, well, they already had somebody tough. And she's like, well, Rogue and Colossus are not the same. And I'm like, yeah, but for kids in a 20-minute cartoon, you don't need two big muscle tough people. And I do feel like that's kind of what's happening here is that Banshee was like the flying person, but Storm is the flying person. So Banshee's kind of a natural leader, but Cyclops is a natural leader. And so then they're also playing that like Banshee's old and experienced as opposed to all these kids. But now with Burns' arrival, Wolverine has kind of (laughs) turned into the old and experienced. And so Banshee has just become the odd man out. And and yeah. what I don't particularly love this part of the run, but every time I read this issue, my amnesia clears about halfway through. And I remember <laughs> that this is the issue where it really starts to feel like Wolverine's history actually makes sense with him. Like mm-hmm. he's talking to animals. He's like yep. making strategic decisions. He's leading them into the cave. Um, this It's very quickly turning into the Wolverine who does connect with all of yep. his older stories. And if you were doing like a sequential Wolverine read, that then terminated in Giant Size X-Men and took you into X-Men. The first 15 issues of Wolverine, or I guess 20 Mm -hmm. now, in X-Men probably would not make a lot of sense. Like, this is the point where he starts really feeling 
like the classic Wolverine. But also, I mean, I feel like Nightcrawler and Storm, and I think that this is a lot of Burns' contributions. You can tell who he likes spending time with. Claremont is like picking up on that, and the team is starting to change, even though it's the same characters doing the same thing. And my yeah. final comment in this diatribe is, you can almost feel that shift in the issue because the beginning is this very pat, like, oh no, flying dinosaurs are taking our team away thing, yeah. which feels really similar to a lot of the ways the team has been picked <laughs> off so far. But then their infiltration of this base and them sneaking in and breaking out of it ultimately feels very, very different than anything yeah. that we've had before. And so you can almost feel the two tones within the same issue. I don't know, Tyler, do you agree you've also read this many times? No, I do. I mean, I I kind of enjoyed this part um, before the 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 the, the pre-Duck Phoenix portion mm. that Claremont and Burn does. Oh, um, I think mainly because they are very... Um, What's the word? Um, they they developed the characters quite a bit, so you see um very um uh telltale characteristics of each characters starts materializing and starts affecting the stories. So then you know it, it feels like you get to know these characters more instead of oh the X Men face this villain, let's all rush in, let's do this. And oh, use this power one by one after another and defeat them. So it kind of, I mean, it's it's no longer that. There's a lot more, um, uh, subtle or not so subtle development along the way. I mean, like you mentioned, um, Wolverines is shown to be able to communicate with animals, and that has never been shown before. And so I think that's something which is kind of interesting here. And I think also, um. In some ways, I think the art is um, plays a a pretty huge part here. Um, is is um is 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 a little bit more dynamic. Um, I mean, not to ding on Cochrane, but um, it it really changes here. Um, in my in my opinion, that um that later on when Cochrane came back, he picked up on as well, and his work on the X Men in the second I mean his second half second run on the X-Men is, is actually a lot um, more dynamic than before that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, mean I, I like this story, but this is um, the pre-Dark Phoenix story. This is not my favorite. So, but... And yes. this is why we read, we read X-Men together. Because, right. you know, now that you, now that you pointed it all over, I'm like, well, this issue is actually much better than I think it is. <laughs> Well, the thing I wanted to come back and ask you is, you know, you know the modern versions of all these characters and part of the kind of drag of this early run is it's like, when did they get to be them? Was there somebody who stuck out for you in this issue doing something? Because I definitely have one to talk about where you're like, oh, that's the that's the them that I know and love. Um, well, Wolverine would probably be my, my pick for that. Um, and there was like a lot of different layers of him though, because, you know, at first when the... Uh, Zabu, right? Yeah, uh, Zabu. The, the, yeah, the, Zabu is like, you know, he's kind of confused because, is that he or she? He. It, he yeah, he's, he's confused because of like, you know, um, the Khazar was taken away and then you'd, you'd kind of initially feel that Uber is going to attack Zabu but then he was like, no, no, come here, kitty. Like, you know, you just go on to your, do your thing, you know. So that was pretty 
cute. And then, then in the next page, he actually straight up kills a person. Yep. And then Storm and Nightcrawler's like, oh no, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's not the X-Men we are. And uh, mm. so yeah, so then that was also the, and then same time it was like, at once he's like, yeah, good work, Ororo. And then the next page is like, hey babe. It's my size. I know, this is, right? This is what it's like. You know, I'm like, oh. Like, it's like one step forward, ten step back. <laughs> and then we kind of ended up with nine step back compared to but, 11 step before. But this this issue is also the first time that Wolverine was being self-deprecating. He said something like, you know, um, uh, at my size, that ain't hard. So, you know, like referring to his shortness. And I thought... <clears throat> That was something different because he has always well he he wasn't that sensitive before that. Yeah, there's a certain yeah, like acerbic so... quality to him here that he that is definitely a Wolverine thing that is being developed at this point for sure. Right. Yeah, but I also didn't quite get the conversation. It's like Wolverine, there is more more to you than meets the eye. At my size, babe, that ain't hard. I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, because not much of him is meeting the eye for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, like you know and then there's actually more of this kind of comes through in like um issue so this is 116 7 18 i think 118 yeah. has some of this like same type of conversation of like more of over that we suddenly know so mm-hmm. i think yeah we are getting there and you know it's kind of g- good to know that you know like you guys pointed out that it was john burns um yeah. influence that yeah. starting to show so Peter, I have a question for you. Sure. Like I'm always not very um not I wouldn't say aware, but I'm not very sure what the role of a lateral is in 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 the comics in the past. Um, you know, besides of course filling in word balloons and stuff like that. Like do they design the word balloon um as well as fill in um, the words, you know, handwritten at that time, because these issues actually welcome one of Claremont's most, um, uh, the, the person that he collaborated most in comics, and right. that is lateral Tom um, Oksichowski. So, I mean, he's not a regular lateral yet, which will come in, I think, a couple of issues later, but... Um, can you can you talk a little bit about, like, you know, how a lateral... Um, can influence a comics and how a good one can influence a comics and a bad one can actually brings it down i can rant about a bad one <laughs> peter knows about it but peter you go ahead well i think you know at the time it was hand lettering and not only hand lettering but you know the bubbles had to be put on the page and if you find classic art that you want to purchase you know any you'd be lucky enough to own a classic x-men page by john byrne you will see the letters as actual paste ups on the page mm-hmm. but part of that is there needing to be room in the panel. And so that's kind of like the collaboration between the writer and the artist and the letterer, especially in some of these small panels. I mean, we get into nine panel grid at one point here, and there's only so much stuff that you can fit in nine panel grid and still show action. And especially if you look at the page where they're being attacked by the pterosaurs in that first panel, there's nowhere to put a word balloon. Cyclops is blasting into the sky. The rider is approaching him from behind, which becomes a plot point in a moment. And you, there was nowhere in that panel to put a balloon. And okay, I can't, I'm not good at saying his name. Tom, our letterer, Tom. Yeah. Um, 
he very wisely uses the gutter space to let the lettering straddle both panels. Now, first of all, that is unusual even today for lettering mm. to be in the gutter space. Like he was really up against a wall there, literally in the art. But also <laughs> it's clever because it shows that the, um, the thing that he's saying has to do with the motion between the two panels too. And it's those kinds of choices. Like some other letterer might've just chosen to put that lettering squeezed into the bottom under, under Cyclops's fist or over his optic eye beam. But like, that's a, that's a choice and a, ch a choice a lot of letters would make. So it's those choices about placement, especially in a tight page like this. And when you have Claremont, especially who is writing the maximum amount of stuff that you can put into a page that really comes through. And also the choices of like what to do with the word balloons and how to put the text in the word balloons. You'll notice that a lot, the modern convention is that letters and word balloons are often centered, which I find kind of hard to read. Centered text doesn't give you a solid margin on one side to mm. kind of let your eye rest upon. But here you'll find that a lot of the balloons actually have all of their words aligned to one side. And a lot of times the balloons will actually hug one side of a panel to set that up. So there's like a lot of little things and even, you know, how to show the whispering, right? The X-Men are whispering to each other. And there's a Marvel convention at that point that the um, bubbles would be a little bit dashed, but just like how to execute that. So it's all of those choices are being done by hand. And I always marvel with this, with Tom's letters that like the utter consistency of his lettering. Like yeah. if you zoom in and look at two A's close to each other, they're noticeably a little bit different, but they are pretty darn similar. And this is just through a whole issue. It just blows my mind. And he is by far one of my favorite letterers. And it really actually stuck out to me because we that later in my read, I came to an issue that was not by him. And I was like, oh, what's going on? Like, did I do yeah. I need to wipe my glasses? No, it's because <laughs> it's not his letters. Yeah. But, uh, the thing I wanted to come back to for a second, you know, we've already talked about Wolverine a lot here, but Wolverine's not the only character going through a transformation here. And I'm not just talking about Colossus being bright pink because they lit him on fire, although I do love that. <laughs> uh, so we get this really interesting contrast of Storm and Cyclops at the end. Cyclops, mm -hmm. at this point, I would say he's been a leader in name only. Like he, he mostly is there to admonish the team. It doesn't feel like he's done a lot of things where he's taken initiative to be a leader. He basically is just like, you should have done that better, right? But here it's Cyclops who on his own winds up kind of chasing down our villain at the end here. All the rest of the team is heaven's knows where. And he gets into this optic blast battle with him at the end. To the point that Cyclops really thinks that he's going to be done for, but it's like his responsibility to throw himself into the breach. And immediately we see that contrasted with Storm, right? Because, you know, there's this big explosion. Both Cyclops and the villain are falling into the pit. Banshee easily plucks Cyclops out of the air. But Storm is determined that we have to save the villain too. And even though she's not really in a leadership capacity here, we're really starting to see her values come through. She even, you know, mm. had that moment earlier in the issue with Wolverine killing the person and her aghastness at that. But this, where she's really almost risking herself to save this person, and you get the feeling that if that overwhelming terror hadn't hit her when she linked minds with him that caused her claustrophobia to kick in, she would have saved this person who was about to kill them all. It's it's very Storm, you know? And so I just feel like, especially because Wolverine, Cyclops, and Storm long-term are really the trinity of X-Men leadership, like it or not, it's really interesting to see that the beginnings of the developments of all three of those here all in one issue. And to her saving, uh, like, you know, to the point where she's saving um, this guy. Forgot what is his name? Garak? Uh, I always forget his uh, name. Garak. Yeah. yeah. Garak. Like, you know, uh, so do you think, like, to me, it felt like it more kicked in because she saw the other killing before. 
Like it, like you know, do, do you feel that way that it was just her a response to what she had seen before, and she was like, "We that's not who we are, or that's not who I want to be," mm-hmm. and so she decided to kind of jump in on that because I do. I was, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't, I wasn't quite like you know, I didn't have quite have the reference on where she was before, like how, how mm-hmm. like you know, is she okay with killing hench people, but not okay with like what? Where yeah. is she in this? I mean, for me, I think um, things were kind of like um, mixed as to when this characteristics of her uh, came in because she has always, well, at least especially in Claremont's run up to a certain point, she has always been like, no, all lives are sacred. I'm not going to, I will not kill, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so, so I don't know if this is the first time we have ever seen it or... You know, so so my memory of it is kind of mixed up or mashed up together. So um, yeah, I, I can't really speak of this. What about Peter? I you know it's developing again, and I think that we've maybe seen a little bit of preciousness from her before here. But this is Claremont trying to push them all apart a little bit. So yeah. before here, we've seen many different ones being like, oh, we don't want to kill them or whatever. But now it's like specifically a storm thing. I think mm-hmm. that's the difference, that maybe we've seen some of these characters express these traits, but it's been much more across the team that they all kind of can do things interchangeably, and now we're starting to see them separate a little bit. And he's still kind of deciding what that's going to look like for Nightcrawler, which we'll start to get in the next few issues, and what that's going to yeah. look like for Colossus. So regarding this scene, right, I actually have not noticed this before until this reread, and it is this. The art in this scene and Claremont's caption is that's not quite line up. So the art clearly shows Storm getting hit by falling rocks instead of being petrified. And yet, Claremont wrote that it is her petrification that made her uh, missed saving Geralt. And... Yeah, and I feel like it's... It, the caption is, images collide in her mind, Garak's eyes mirroring the ancient terror within her. Without meaning yeah. to, she hesitates. Not only do you, like, you just don't get a visual sense of that at all, and I no. always am confused and I get stuck on that panel. It makes me yeah. wonder, is Claremont trying to set up the Shadow King stuff that's going to happen in the next issue with him? Tar- I just, it really always feels discontinuity to mm. me. So this is kind of in line with what Burns said about why he eventually left the title. <laughs> is so one of the I remember reading one of the uh, interview where he said that you know they were doing these mostly in the Marvel Marvel way so both Byrne and Claremont will come together agree on the plot and then Byrne will go back and do the art himself and Claremont will later come in to fill in the details the dialogue and the captions so what so in one instance not this instance he gave an instance um, for an issue later on that is like, oh, actually two two different instances that he wrote that they agree on something and he drew something and then Claremont came back and rewrite the scene to suit, you know whatever he he felt whatever like. he came up with in the interim. yeah and then yeah. and then Burn was like Burn felt like he was being disrespected I think in some ways so I I think this might be one of those cases where I mean the beginning of some of these cases where you where they agree on certain things Burn drew it certain ways and then. And then Claremont came in and either add another layer or try to turn the um, the the situation around with his captions and his words. Mm. So 
now I'm going to look in for these things as well. It's like, <laughs> are they in agreement? What's going on, guys? Yeah. I'm going to get a magnifying glasses and then just go into... But I to, be honest, to be honest, though, I had to read this page twice. Yeah, because I was, really I was also con- Yeah, I was also confused. I'm like, wait, what? What happened? Oh, yeah. oh okay. Sure. Well, <laughs> and in terms of, you know, Claremont's urge to revise and revise and revise, now, of course, we have classic X-Men on top of this, and you'd think that they would go back and and do some reworking on that page, since that's the one that really doesn't make a lot of sense. But mostly the thing that happens in the classic X-Men is the more detail on the scene where Wolverine kills the guard, just to Mm. make it seem a little bit less abrupt and like a little bit less um, casual, and and to build in more of that objection from Storm and Nightcrawler. So that's exactly. really the only major change. There's a lot of mm-hmm. small relettering changes in the issue, but yeah. none of them really amount to anything. It's mostly an extra page to give some more definition to the murder <laughs> of the guard. I, th- I, I thought... actually, I, I actually kind of like the abruptness of it all. So I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's not canon. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was really funny how Storm basically fling Nightcrawler away in the in in the addition because she's like she suddenly just caught her off Kurt and then throw him into the shadows and then like fly over Wolverine after tackling him onto the ground to <laughs> I thought that was really funny but yeah I agree <laughs> it, it really doesn't add much to to um to this um to to that scene um but we do we want to talk about the colossus turning pink because that's a very mm. scientific thing I was like whoa he actually operates like a like a actual steel right so, because it's so it's he's getting warmer and so why does steel glow you're our engineer yeah. why does steel turn colors as it gets warmer it's like a vibration like really it's too much yeah i think i'll have to come back to the actual actual <laughs> reasons you know i don't want to give fake news you know but the thing is like it's um i think it's it's more to do with vibration so so I'll, the the faster they vibrate, the shorter wavelength gets reflected, I which is so. why it appears more red. Because guys, don't co- the... don't let's not let's not become like a fake science. Uh, I'm thing. not. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll research be... I'll research this and report back for a future episode, guys. Yeah, <laughs> physics was is my worst thing. So. Oh, oh so, so, it's, so it's mine. But you know, wait, but you're as an engineer. engineer. I know. I can't. I, I, I can't say those things. So you know, I'm more okay. into like the frost, like a flow of stuff going from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's always so, funny to me but, is you know the the pink is so striking on the page, especially because on newsprint paper at that time, pink was a color that really popped. And you just know if there was a modern recoloring of this, it would be this like total BS orange. kind of like orangey red because. God help us that something should be pink. Like, is pink a color steel really, really changes? Like, no, it's more of like an orangey red, but it's just so much more memorable that he's mm. pink. It just really, like, I always remember, oh, it's time for pink glasses. And of pink. course, that would be the kind of thing that would get changed if they were to modernize the coloring here. So this issue ends with, you know, like all done in the Savage Land, the X-Men finally can get on a boat because this little wooden craft is gonna help them cross the entire ocean to get back to somewhere. (laughs) Uh, And immediately they hit a storm at sea. And I think it's just funny because it kind of shows you how um, young these characters are. The storm's like, it's a typhoon, I can't do anything about that. Like modern storm would, you know, make cyclones that let her teleport around the globe. It's just really interesting, the power creep. And it teases this next issue, Psy War, which we're gonna jump right into. 
So mm -hmm. we have Uncanny X-Men issue 117, and this is Cywar. It's an incredibly, incredibly significant issue. If I would, I would say one of the few that you must read in this run if you're just kind of picking and choosing. Because even though the X-Men are lost at sea, most of this is about Xavier and him recollecting his post-war life, including his first encounters with Storm, as it happens, as well as with Amal Farouk, the Shadow King, which is super significant, although it won't really come back for a long, long, long time for in Claremont's run. time. <laughs> yeah. Freeha, what did you... And I should say here we didn't give the standard disclaimer at the beginning, but we do do spoilers in this podcast yeah. and uh, for modern books. And because of some of the natures of Professor X's journey here, we're going to talk about Jonathan Hickman's House of X and Powers of X because it completely alters the way that we'd be looking at this. But we're going to try not to spoil anything past House of X and Powers of X mm -hmm. since that's about a year and a half old. You've had some time to, to get on board. So Freya, what did you think of this one-off issue of Professor X's history and his first meeting with the Shadow King. So like the uh, Magneto issue 112 or 113, this is one my same, like, you know, my one of my most favorite issue that I have read in this, like, so far. You know, there was, like, it was something... I really like that whole idea of, like, the mental fighting like you know, even though it must look really dumb outside, yeah, because it's like because visually they they are like just two people sitting there, sitting and, and, and staring at each other and staring at each other. But then in the mind, there's like a lot of fighting going on. There's like you know their knight armor and all of that was happening. At one point, he kind of looks like Silver Surfer, which is weird. Um, but yeah, so there's like a lot of that going on. Um, but and also like you know we kind of get to see like you know hear a lot like you know the like gene is like I can't be here anymore there's too much memories and then um <laughs> then you know there's all this like so and then also Lilandra is having all this discussion and then I'm like well aren't you guys soulmates why are you asking these questions now these are the first questions you ask someone when you're you know meeting them well you know haha jokes uh but yeah so I think like overall I really enjoyed this issue but then it also kind of so is Professor X not English in X-Men? No. Because he's not. No. Okay. No. Okay. So that's my movie dumb moment. Okay. So he's not. He's never been English. But he spent a long time in yeah. England. So maybe yeah. like Madonna, he has just picked up the accent over time. Oh, yeah. okay. 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 That makes sense. Because, you know, he was like, oh yeah, I was drafted into war. I'm like, which war? And I'm like, how old is he? And that's also like, you know, I was kind of mostly stuck with that. But the thing is like, it's Vietnam War that he was... I believe it is the Korean, Korean War. Korean War. Korean War. Okay. Yeah. Which, if you think about it, it doesn't make him all that old. I mean, this was in 1978. Mm. He, if he was drafted into Korea, you know, at the age, you know, we're at the point that it interrupted his studies, uh, you know, and now he's 23 years older. Like, he's not that old. He's not elderly. Mm. <laughs> he he mm. looks very elderly. But I, I do want to do... <laughs> so that's what, so he that's does, what I mean. And he has those that's one of the crazy eyebrows. And that one page exactly. of burn, his eyebrows are so, they stand up off of his face. Like you can see daylight yeah. between his forehead and his eyebrows. They're so wild and huge. Well, let's get into that Mora stuff for a second because yeah. Professor Xavier, at the time, you're just like, oh, here's the background of why he's so friendly with Mora. They're sometimes housekeeper, sometimes terrorist security guard or machine gun. <laughs> yeah, machine but gun. now we have to really look at it with a totally new set 
of eyes. He says, I was working toward my doctorate when I met Maura McTaggart, and it was love at first sight for both of us. Well, that's not quite true anymore. <laughs> it was it was more like love at first mind meld to show him that there were nine lives of debut previously, <laughs> and they had to collaborate with each other. And it's really interesting that like he, he's even locked that away from Lalandra. Like he, he obviously can't reveal that to Lalandra, yeah. and so he has this like psychic cover story for that that even his soulmate, if we're looking at it from the House of X powers of X perspective, cannot access. And to her, it's like oh he just fell in love with this Moira McTaggart. But to him, he's like here's where I learned the potential fate of the mutant race and that it was up to me to prevent it. So with that in mind, I have two questions. Do you think he's in Cairo to look for Apocalypse? And then the second question is, is there a reason why he wanted to go to space at this time? Hmm. Probably. Now, if you think about it, yeah. Like, probably. But, you know, at that time, obviously, that's not the reason. Yeah, like, yeah at that time, he's not. <laughs> yeah, like, why are you in Egypt? Um, why are you yeah, in so, Cairo? Yeah. yeah, exactly. But the thing is, like, um, it this is, the first appearance of Amal Farouk? It is. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, but you know, it was actually very telling, like, you know, he was talking about, he also learned, this is the for, for the first time, how mutant power can be dangerous in, you know, under, back, like, you know, different people. And I think that's actually also telling because we have seen that happen again and again. It's like, it really depends on what you do with the power. Um, mm. But yeah, but you know, he also is not very good because he's just like randomly attacking children and getting. Well, she yeah. picked his pocket. Oh, <laughs> yeah! Come on, <laughs> don't mess up like you know some random child. It's like it's like yeah, I'm just like you know, hey child, where have you been? I'm like mm, you, <laughs> and in an alleyway, I'm like the whole idea is like gross <laughs> well then he like nail it he's like i hit her with like a gentle side bolt like yeah and she's gonna yeah. like cluck like a chicken every time she <laughs> passes an alleyway for the rest of her life do you think these things through professor xavier uh so you know i've i find this one page montage of his history so fascinating because at the time even at the time there's this um mystery element to it where Mora's like she's breaking her engagement returning to Scotland yeah. she wouldn't say why but if you read this with this modern view having read House of X number two I really feel it's like maybe Xavier's not moving fast enough for her right like he's kind of ambling along there's no X-Men yet he hasn't put a team together and Mora is like the, the clock is ticking and so she says maybe I'm gonna go do something else and and he is cursed with this knowledge right from Mora if we're playing by the House of X rules and so he kind of just goes on a walkabout and it's him meeting this evil mutant which to according to him here if we trust him he's never really done before that makes him really realize how serious Mora's information from her past lives is he's like oh my gosh like this is one of these people that she's probably encountered and has told him about and maybe he was maybe even hoping to bump into not really fully believing her about the seriousness of the situation only to discover oh my word it's actually really quite serious and and Mutant said, or this evil cause a, you know, potential harm to all of humanity as well as all of mutantdom. Well, Moira also um, uh, wondered, like, how much Xavier and Magneto actually remembered what she told, what she shared with them, right? So I think in one of her diary entries, she said that, you know, they probably don't remember uh, some of the final details, mm. and I'm not going to let them read my mind again. 
Right. Because yeah, I remember something like that. So so it could be because of that as well that you know Xavier knew the general um uh uh idea of like what needs to be done, but he doesn't know certain things and that could be the reason why. I mean, there's another reason I think why Moira broke the <laughs> the the engagement and engagement. Um, but that that will come into play I think maybe sometime later. Yeah, and a few issues. Freya, what did you think of, yeah, uh, think of all I, of this in terms of our modern knowledge? Right, no, I was just going to say that Moira should have picked two of you because you guys are so detail-oriented and you remember everything. <laughs> so that that would have been something. Rather than like, you know, these people were like, oh, like, oh yeah, Ty. Uh, no, I was actually kind of thinking about it because I went back to reread some of the Moira life things because I was kind of forgetting. And then anyway, uh, but I think one of the things that... Um, it says in the life six that she realizes that one of the things that's problem for mutants is time. Like time is the biggest enemy of mutants. And I think that kind of tracks with what you're saying that Xavier was not moving fast enough. So for her to be like, okay, this is not working out and stuff like that. But at the same time, I mean, obviously, because we're trying to re like, you know, retcon something and trying to put the story in there, it's like, yeah why not light the fire? Like, you know, why just wait to, for Xavier to do something? Why not, like, why even, like, why not just push faster? I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously it may, it doesn't make, like, you know, when you try to look at it from that point of view, mm. it's like, oh, you have to rewrite everything. Um, maybe in the next life we will. <laughs> and what did you think about this idea? And I don't know if you knew about it before, that Xavier had met Storm before. Aside from him cornering her in an alleyway, like, what did you just think about this idea that this young storm like slipped through his fingers before he even had his original five X team? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't. I mean, not. I think like that's also something goes back to like him not taking the initiative because if he kind of knows these young mutants are out there, he, like, you know, I I don't know, kidnap storm from the street <laughs> and bring her over. Um, so I, I think this this move falls more in line with like, oh yeah, the characters met each other before. Um, I didn't quite necessarily think of it anything more than that. But I I wasn't also quite sure that he realized that she is a mutant. Yes, or it is. It's, he did? It's, on the it's in the caption itself. So if oh, you go okay. to that page where he froze her, um, uh -huh. in the middle, right in the middle. Oh, I, rec okay. I recognize her Layton. Oh, latent mutant. Um, so yeah. maybe he was waiting for the mutant thing to... And maybe that's how he knew to go and find her there, you know? So maybe he just kept keeping track. And maybe this is when he first realized that, oh, I need to create Cerebro or whatever way to find more mutant. You know, so I think like it's more of like a chance encounter that may have given him a lot of ideas for later on. Hmm. And it's, I, I guess the reason that just fascinates me is not only because it was a really significant flashback at the time, not only because of the House of X number two stuff, but here's Claremont really altering the history of the X-Men with intent, mm. right? Like he puts a huge story in there for X-Men, for Xavier. He basically has this as Xavier's discovery of the astral plane and potentially one of the first reasons he realized he's, he has to be a force for good. He introduced the idea that he's had he's met Storm before all the other original five. Like this is pretty bold stuff for Claremont to just be like throwing out all an issue. And, it, and even before we look at future retcons to this, it absolutely changes your read. We could go back and reread now class 
classic X-Men in the way that somebody who somehow had access to those issues in the late 1970s could have and said like, wow, all this reads differently now that I know that Professor Xavier met the Shadow King and you know, all this stuff. But then also Shadow King does not really come back in a, in, other than in a retcon capacity and in inserted stories like classic X-Men for a hundred and... 30 issue a really long time yeah, Tyler a long long time like it it, it 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 it's just it just appears to be like a throwaway thing right like, that you would yeah, like never think of again yeah you don't think of it again but that's that's the thing with Claremont <laughs> he will he will be like oh I, I've ran out of ideas and then somehow someone will remind will remind him of like what about this character that you introduced like you know how many years ago? Like almost <laughs> ten years ago, and you'll be like, "Oh yeah, I will. I can work that. I can work with that." Um, so I thought that was really interesting. No, and if you look at the fact that you know before uh, when a character died, character actually died, yeah. right? So the thing is, like, as far as the readers were concerned, that Shadow, like Amal Farouk is dead. Like you yeah. know, he's not he's not coming back. You know, um, so I think from that point of view, to it must have been a really a shock and a good one, probably, you know, to yeah. see that him coming back. I mean, now we know that he's around. Yeah. <laughs> and I what? slightly misspoke the, the number of issues because I was just thinking of Uncanny X-Men, but Claremont first no. brings Shadow King back as a plot point in the early 30s of New Mutants, New which Mutants. is just before Secret Wars 2, so somewhere mm. right around the 190s and 200 of Uncanny X-Men. And then he disappears again, only to be, you know, a plot point starting in the Uncanny X-Men 250s and yeah. culminating, of course, in the Muir Island saga at the end of Claremont's run of Uncanny mm. X-Men. But again, still, this was a character that got put to bed for 70 issues and you know that in Claremont's mind because we know how he works from reading this it's yeah. not like he just remembered him later in his mind he was like oh now I have this unexploded grenade of this psychic mutant that I can bring back and use at some point when I really can twist the knife with it so here's a little bit of a criticism right um, what do you think of uh, Ahmed Farouk's uh, skin color here? hmm Bria? Mm, no, not good <laughs> no, I mean knowing his uh his origin yeah. is like mm. but then again, Egyptian people can be very white passing. Oh, so okay. you know, so, so that's maybe not. Yeah, so from that point of view, you know, it's like but the thing is like if you're trying I think it's actually for the better because you want you don't want to introduce a dark skinned character as bad person. Like, you know, mm. it kind of falls into that um you know that stereotype as well so from that point of view it's actually better but i know for certain that egyptian people can't be white passing too so okay. you know i mean the, although like the features of him is very egyptian but yeah. you know the skin tone can be um but to that point and this i'm gonna try my best not to be spoilery but the thing is the shadow king's past that we now know that is a new information or that was like an old information that was recycled? That's a new information. Uh, that's that's why that's why I have been talking about the rehabilitation of Shadow King. Or of uh, uh Ahmed Farouk. So in, in that sense, that's that's where I'm coming from. Uh, or even okay, in Claremont's okay. various revisitations of the character, we do get the idea that the Shadow King mental energy leaps around from character to character and can mm. be disembodied. 
But there's yeah. still, I think, and I, you know, that's why we're rereading the implication that it originated with Farouk in Claremont, even though it's jumping around after his potentially yeah. original body here is, you know, deceased, if in fact that really happens. But I do want to go back to Freya's point that his features are drawn as, you know, non-white features, especially when Byrne goes into a tight close-up in, in close a way up. that's actually a caricature, I think, almost a little, taking a little bit too far. And I agree that if that was combined with a, a different colored skin tone at the time, it, would, it really would have gone all the way to like racist caricature. So I think the medium for 1978 was draw him with recognizably kind of like non-Caucasian features, but color him identically to Xavier. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's what we got. So, no, I mean, the, so going back to his power level then, so Shadow King gives him power or Amal Farouk is the mutant? At this time. Who is a mutant? And through the course of Claremont, the understanding yeah. I believe that we're supposed to have is that the Shadow King is such a powerful force on the astral plane that even after the supposed death of his original body, he continues on mm. as mental energy and a mutant yeah. purely in the mindscape of the astral plane. Correct. Shadow King and Amaferu is one person. It's one right. thing. Right. So what Peter is alluding to is that when Amaferu, the person, dies, uh, Amaferu's psychic is so powerful that it continues to live on, to, to, to survive on the psychic plane. And then it finds another medium? Yeah, and then he takes over someone else. Okay. Gotcha. Well, and there aren't a ton of revisions in the classic X-Men for this issue. Yeah. It inserts a second epilogue of the X-Men on the boat. So what's been happening to frame all this is like the X-Men are discovered at sea by the this you know Japanese, Japanese freighter. Yeah. It's on a mission, but they're like, we can't make any contact or divert our mission. Even though you're at the tip of South America right now, we're going back to Japan. So just shut up and you're yeah. along for the ride. And um, the classic X-Men issue basically just adds an epilogue to show that they're still on the boat. Because at the beginning of the next issue, it actually feels kind of a abrupt without this but it also shows wolverine like pining for poor dead gene and him being like that scott doesn't even care which we all know the feelings about on this podcast <laughs> it also does a lot of slight um grammar fixes and it kind of like softens a lot of the absolutism in xavier's recollections if he's like this happened like this or then i immediately went to here claremont kind of softens that a little bit because even between when this was published and when classic x-men was published he had inserted a lot of other stuff yeah. But then there are also two backup stories in Classic X-Men number 22 and 23. 22 fits right at the end of 116 and before the X-Men depart the Savage Land. And 23 happens at some unidentified point in the midst of 117 or between 117 and 118. So let's talk about Classic X-Men number 22 first. Um, Storm falls through a lake in the Savage Land to another dimension where she becomes a sky pirate. Discuss. Sure. <laughs> Honestly, I was like, is this when she learned to become a pirate? And now we have her. This is the origin of Pirate Storm. I don't know. I didn't I didn't quite know what was going on. I didn't like, you know, quite because it it seems like because it was actually very good that we ended 116 with like, oh, um, Uber is saying, no, she has to go like, you know, figure it out herself. Yeah. So I thought that this would be more about that figuring out that, you know, she couldn't save someone and how it kind of fits into her thing. But it was kind of went into a different direction. And I'm like, it is. I mean, sure. I don't. I agree because I don't really remember this story until I reread again. I was like, oh, 
okay, so this is what happened. And I mean, I feel like a couple of things um, that might be me reading too much into it. That's, there is this particular dream sequence of Storm. And I think the way the caption is saying is that, that, um, that you know, she is finally being saved by something. And that panel, um, yeah, sort of panel that says that she, she's saved uh, shows her in the X-Men costume. So I, I was just wondering if like, you know, that, that, that subconsciously she's saying that being an X-Men saved her in a way. I think so, that's a, I, that's my read. Yeah. Okay. You know, that she's just out on the, the planes pretending to be a goddess without any real focus on life. And like X-Men gave her a different and, and more direct purpose. Mm-hmm. So was it all in a dream? Or this really happened? Or that's, this is like an oxygen deprived situation the, because she fell into the water. I mean... Okay. Isn't this supposed... I mean, isn't this kind of like the question mark because it's, it's, it's very never-ending story, right? It is. <laughs> they ride around on like a giant falcor with I know. pirate ship on its back. Okay. I yeah. you know Claremont loves these um these like pocket reality stories. It's what he does in a lot of the annuals once we start getting yeah, to the annuals. Part of it because it like doesn't really interrupt the flow of the story and he can go tell this huge adventure with no need to consider continuity in the slightest. Mm-hmm. But also because he likes putting all these little unexploded bombs and he very frequently will go back and like reference one element of yeah. the um of the alternate reality or dimension or whatever story in the future, which is where I think Marvel gets a lot of its conception of like when they ran Secret Wars in 2015 saying all of these battle world stories will have one element that a future story will refer to. That's very very Claremontian, you know, like I, he, yeah. um, he sends them to Asgard, or he sends them to Akron's realm, or he sends them to Limbo, or whatever, and they come back with this one piece of information that becomes useful later. And mm. I just think this one, unless there's something about it that I'm totally forgetting, just I don't think any of it ever becomes useful. No, later. I did not. I mean, I don't remember the, for example, I don't remember the cameo crystal ever coming into play again, which, yeah. which was something that the 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 which um like Mirren gave 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 Storm. And initially I thought there was some subtext between Mirren and Storm until the end it became a daughter mother uh, Yeah, it seems like that one time skip was like them having romance sexy times. Yeah. And then it was like they're like a mother and a daughter. I'm like, oh like, I read that totally wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and but to be honest though, I don't know whether that was added because of that there was like like it was an editorial mandate to add that given that time because i also thought the same thing and i'm like oh mother daughter i'm like please that sounds like you know back in the day when people used to adopt each other because that's the way to pass on the you know pass on the hair and air on like you know state and everything so so that's one of the reasons i feel like you know that was kind of mandated but yeah i i was mostly thinking that oh maybe this will come into play later but listening to you guys doesn't sound like it ever does well it turns out it does uh this oh, character it does. this character Whoa. comes back one time in x-men annual 12 which is a Claremont annual. It's part of the evolutionary war crossover and the X-Men go back to the Savage Land and I guess Storm must make use of that amulet. So one day when we get up to 1988 in our reread, we will get to understand why Claremont felt the need to invent this past for good old Marin. Mm, Her only other appearance. Mm. And maybe she will be appearing in one of the issues we are going to be reading in This Week and X and we'll be like, oh, 
remember? And I'm sure it will be Al Ewing who brings her back. Okay, so now to move on to classic X-Men number 23. The I, I can't decide how I feel about this one. So in the middle of their travels on the Japanese freighter, uh, one of the women on board goes overboard. Nightcrawler tries to teleport out and catch her, but he's in the middle of the freaking ocean. So he can't get back onto the ship, but he somehow, both of them wash up separately on an island where there's evil beast people and Nightcrawler needs to go on a swashbuckling adventure to save this young woman from being sacrificed to the gods of the beast people before they get picked back up by their ship. And again, because there's a bottle episode and it has to just fit, continue on their way to Japan. What did we think about this one? So this was like uh, Nightcrawler as Indiana Jones. Like yes. it was yeah, so ma- Yeah, it's so <laughs> Nightcrawler. And then the thing is, I thought that it was mostly like, it was nice because, you know, how he wants to be a movie star, you know. So from that point of view, it kind of matches with that. Like it's theater, it's theater, it's movie, it's like an adventure. And I I really like the fact that the, the girl at the end is like, oh, how can I ever repay you? And he's like, we'll think of something. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of nice. Because he's very self-conscious about like, you know, uh, ladies not liking him because how he looks and everything. So the fact that he got that, I thought... That was pretty nice. And, you know, even though it's one of those, like, oh, yeah, the guy sells the girl. But it, for him, I'll let him have it. It's it's nice. I thought it was nice, you know, even though it's weird, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> what about the, the makeshift hat that he wore? With oh, the yeah. Leaves? That was, yeah. That, <laughs> that was, made me that laugh. Was... Like, even, sun, even Nightcrawler cows about sun protection and his skin, everybody. <laughs> exactly. Wear a hat. Exactly. It's yeah, like here, exactly. here, you know, the sun is so strong at this part of the southern mm. hemisphere that even when yeah. it's a cool day out like today, um, there'll be a note like, make sure your kids are in, you know, sun hats yeah. and sunblock and everything before you it send is. them to school. Which to people who are from the U.S., like, you're like, really? It's not like it's mm-hmm. like summer hot right now, but the sun is strong. So I felt no. like, good job for Nightcrawler, who's probably in the southern hemisphere at this point, caring about sun protection. Exactly. And, and, I mean, it, it is really, really strong sun in New Zealand. I mean, I didn't know that because I'm from Singapore. I'm like sunshine all around and I typically <laughs> don't wear sun sunscreen. So when I was in New Zealand, like, um, you know, many years ago, I was like, I, I don't have the habit of wearing sunscreen. And when I came home, my mom is like, why are you so dark? I'm like, um, what do you mean? She's like, just look at you. You're like 10. And I was like, really? I was like, oh, it must be the sun in New Zealand. And, um, but going back to the, like, hat, hat and I also really liked the way he kind of solved the problem because he was like, you know, kind of pretended to be faint and then, you know, at the last moment, bamfed out of there. Yeah. Um, by the way, being bamfed, like bamfing somewhere should be a var- verb we should be using all the time. <laughs> I think. You know, because Wolverine created, coined it and I think we should be using it. Just bamf out of here. Like, you know. Well, they so, do. I feel like they do in the comic use it as a verb. Yeah. Sometimes you know, but in do. real life. Oh, like, in that's real what life. I mean. Get the, let's you know. bamf the heck out of here. Yeah, let's bamf the heck out of here. So. But I also, I mean, the other thing I also liked about this issue is the sound effects that they put in. Like when Nightcrawler kicked the beast, there's the boot. And then when he punched the priest, there's like pow. So, I mean, I don't, I don't see that very often nowadays, but I thought it was really funny. Right. I guess so, my, yeah. my thing on this issue is like, 
it just tries to do a little too much in a backup issue amount of time. Like, mm-hmm. did they have to be beast people and did they have to have a high priest? I guess it's kind of like better than just saying that they're local savages or whatever, which is like so much worse. But it just yeah. felt like there were so many plot layers. Like there's a plane and there's beast people and they're sacrificing somebody to a volcano. Like it just felt like we could we could maybe remove one of those layers and it would give a little bit more room for it to be like a really memorable Nightcrawler story. But with yeah. that many layers, it's a little, I really like, Okay, Claremont. But maybe that's just me. Like, I just get a little eye-rolly when the, when there's so many layers stacked on top of each other in a story. But it's it's cute. It's a very cute Nightcrawler story. Yeah. And then now we have, like, you know, both Colossus and Nightcrawler got some action <laughs> during their adventure in Savage Land. And in Storm almost did until editorial said that yeah. Lynn had to be her mother. Uh, yeah. Mom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the other question I have in this backup story, like, I mean, it's, it is really nothing question, but it's like, well, how does Storm knows that the flare is from Nightcrawler? Just right? Because it's not guessed. like he went overboard with a flare, but I yeah, guess she just, just like, was whoa. on the lookout for anything yeah, yeah, flying around. Yeah, but then it also reminded me of like mutant technology discussion that we had. Like, it's like, it is kind of like, it's like, yeah, she's just like used her, her, like, you know, it's a clear day and she used her lightning to say that if it is, then he will know. Oh, well, that was <laughs> Well, she could, why couldn't she have done some skywriting? Couldn't she have sent yeah. him a message in the clouds? We're on our way, you know? Why? <laughs> she was thinking about Marine, okay? That's uh. why. See? It all connects. It all connects. It all connects. <laughs> well, now that we've connected the themes of all these issues for you, that's it for our discussion of Uncanny X-Men 116 and 117 and their corresponding classic X-Men backups. If you want to keep up with our read, next issue will be Uncanny X-Men 118 and 119. You could place classic X-Men 24 in that time period as well, but it has a very specific kind of, I won't say spoiler, but we'll say plot advancement that yeah. makes Tyler and I want to read it later. So we'll talk a little yeah. bit why next issue, but we're not actually going to read Classic X-Men 24's backup story yet. We're only going to refer to it. So really easy reading assignment for next time. 118 and 119. Mm-hmm. And until then, uh, as Freya mentioned earlier in the episode, you know, I don't super love this X-Men go around the world arc, but it's really great to have people to talk to about it because why, Freya? X-Men is better when it's read together. That's right. And it's so much fun reading it with Tyler and Freya because they give me totally new perspectives on this material. And hopefully we have brought you some new perspectives as well. So on the behalf of all three of us, until we get to speak to you again, please be well. Bye. Bye.